0: Do take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And our consideration is verses 29 and 30. As we're nearing already the end of the chapter, it means we're nearing the end of summer too. We will, the Lord willing, begin a um, study in First and Second Samuel in the fall. But today, Romans 8, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And now our verses for this morning's consideration. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. If you look at verse 28, which we considered a few weeks ago, you'll see in that very famous verse that God uh, tells us that, uh, or Paul tells us that God's purpose is to work all things for our good. That's the purpose of God, for those called according to God's purpose. Now, in verses 29 and 30, we're given a little insight into what that purpose is exactly. So, in verses 29 and 30... He, he's moving from telling us that God works all things for good to telling us how it is that he works all things for good. And here is a picture of the good purpose of God spoken of in verse 28. As James Montgomery Boyce says, There is no greater scope given to the wonderful activity of God in salvation in all the Bible than what we find in verses 29 and 30. No greater scope given to the wonderful activity of God in salvation. And so what Paul is showing us in these two verses is that God's purpose for his people starts in eternity and and it ends in eternity. He begins with us before there was a beginning and he will never stop or cease to have dealings with us. This is God for us and it's God for us forever Now, the passage, if you look at these verses, it comes out very clearly in verse 30, but it really does begin in verse 29. The passage utilizes a Greek rhetorical device known as a sorites. If you're interested, that's S-O-R-I-T-E-S, sorites, or sorites argument. Sorites is the Greek word which means a pile or or a heap, and the idea is that each each uh, supposition or premise in the argument builds on the previous. And so they kind of pile onto each other. They heap on to each other. Um, it's also been known as a chain argument in rhetoric, a chain argument, and that's why many people have called Romans 8, 29, and 30 the golden chain of salvation, the golden chain of salvation, which is a lot easier to pronounce than surites. So we will be calling it the golden chain of salvation. Of salvation, and this golden chain is made up. You'll see of five links: God's foreknowledge, then predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Now, that's not a, an exhaustive list of every step involved in salvation. You'll notice there are certain things missing, like uh, faith and, and regeneration. Paul is not giving us. It's important to understand a complete picture. Of God's purpose in salvation. He's not giving us a complete picture, but rather he's giving us a concrete principle of how God works in salvation, and that concrete principle is this. Once God begins with us, he never lets us go. Once God starts with us, he finishes what he begins. Nothing can thwart his plan to save us and bring us into perfect fellowship with himself because Those whom God has foreknown, he predestines. And those whom he's predestined, he calls. And those whom he's called, he justifies. And those whom he's justified, he will one day glorify. That's what the golden chain tells us. So this morning, we're just going to work our way through each link in the chain. And then to close, I want to leave you with a few considerations of why it is that this golden chain is golden and why it's so good. So the first link. What are we told? We're told it's foreknowledge, those whom he has foreknown. Um, I would like in one sense if you could just forget that word altogether because I think it's caused a lot of uh, confusion. It doesn't necessarily mean what it sounds like. People have taken this word foreknown or foreknowledge and, and their misconception of it and done some wonky theologizing over the centuries. For means simply before, and so foreknowledge is to have knowledge of something beforehand. And what some people have deduced, um, uh, Arminius, this guy named Arminius and his followers, chief among them, is that God must have knowledge of, of uh, who is going to believe based on what they call foreseen faith. Foreseen faith. Foreknown faith. Uh, The the way it's often described, maybe you've heard it before, is the idea like God looks down the, it's often called like the corridors of time or the halls of history, and he sees all things, he sees all people, and he sees um, everyone who will have faith in him if presented the option of belief. If presented the gospel, he sees everybody who would respond in the affirmative. And those people who he has this foreknowledge that they would believe, he elects to salvation. Now there's an issue with that because it then roots our election our salvation in our faith in what we do in our response Which is tantamount to say we're saved by our works. The work just happens to be our belief But that is not what paul is saying In fact, he tells us here that election is not rooted in Foreseen faith or our faith at all. It's rooted in god's love the reason We are saved isn't because we believe, but because God has loved us. And out of his love, he's given us the ability to believe. But we start with God's love. And so, like I said, if we could just kind of forget this term foreknowledge, I would have us use instead the term love. For those whom God has loved. The word to know, the verb to know in the Bible, both in the the New Testament and in the Old Testament, is used often with the sense of having an intimate relationship with someone, uh, in the sense of of approving someone or having affection for someone. Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He approves the way of the righteous. Um, Or Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, surely the omnipotent God is not saying you know, of all the people out there, you're the only ones I've actually he- ever heard anything about. You-, you alone have I known of all the families. You alone do I have any knowledge of. He's not saying that. He knows all things. He's saying, of all the nations, of all the peoples, you alone have I set my special love upon, my approval upon. So foreknowledge is not that God had knowledge of some facts beforehand. It's that he has knowledge of us. Look at what the verse says. It says, those whom he foreknew. It's about him knowing us. It's about him loving us. R.C. Sproul writes, we could reasonably translate this text, those whom he foreloved. Those whom he knew in a personal, intimate, redemptive sense from all eternity. It is those whom he foreloved he predestined. And so when we're talking about God's foreknowledge, We're talking about the fact that God loved you before there was a you to love. And that is good news because it means he loved you before there was a you to hate. Before there was a you to reject. Before you had done anything. You see, God's election is rooted in an unconditional love. His love is unconditional. It's not based on our performance, whether it's good or bad. Because it reaches back before time. It's a for-love And that is the first link in the chain. And that love leads by logical necessity to predestination. What does that mean? Well, it means that God determines where we're going before we get there. He determines our destination beforehand. Pre, predestination. God Now, God predestines all things. That's what it means when we say God is sovereign. The Westminster um, Shorter Catechism, when talking about the decrees of God, it says the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, whereby, according to the counsel of his will, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to to pass. So foreordained is another word for predestined. He has chosen. He's predestined. He's foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Everything. But here we're not talking about whatsoever. We're talking about... uh, Something personal. We're talking about a a who here. Those whom he has foreknown, he predestines. And when predestination is used in terms of people or of souls, it also um, is another word to use that we could use to describe that is is election. Is election. That's a synonym in that sense. This chain is teaching us that those whom God has loved. He has elected to be with him forever. That's their destiny. All of God's purposes for us are rooted in love. His plan starts from a place of love, and love carries out that, the execution of that plan in real space and time. No work of God for his people can be understood at all if you don't first understand that he's motivated by his love. It's bewildering to think that God would do what he does if we don't understand he's doing it because he loves us. You know, you would ask, why should I be predestined? Why should I be elected to live forever in paradise with God? I'm not worthy. I've not done anything deserve to de- be you know deserving of this. Well, go back to the first link of the chain. Why are you predestined? Because he's loved you. That's why. And we read this truth in various places. Look with me in your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter seven. Let's turn there together now. De- Deuteronomy chapter seven. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7, God is speaking to Israel, a people holy to the Lord, the people who are chosen. And look at what it says in verse 7 of chapter 7. It was not, God says, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt it's because the Lord loves you that he does this now let's look at the new testament it tells us the same thing in first peter turn to first peter that's after james and before believe it or not second peter first peter in the very beginning This is how Peter opens the epistle verse 1. To those who are elect exiles. So that's the second link in the chain, right? Predestined. Predestination, election. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now he tells us why they are elect. According to the foreknowledge of God. It's the same logic Paul uses. Those whom he's foreknown, he's elected. And Peter says, Those who are elect is because God, it's been in accordance with God's foreknowledge. So why are you elect? Why are you chosen? Why are you predestined? It's in accordance to the foreknowledge of God, the for love of God. Those whom he loves, he predestines. And notice now, back to Romans 8, how Paul describes the destination of our predestination. Where are we headed? What is the purpose? Where are we going? It says Paul or it says God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. When we're talking about predestination, when we're talking about where Christians are headed, it's to Jesus. We're headed to Jesus Christ, to him personally. Our predestination is for the purpose of bringing us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in the Bible, predestination is never discussed in the abstract. It's always related to our relationship with the Son of God. And here, Paul tells us that relationship has to do with our bearing a family resemblance. We know that those, or Paul writes in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son In order that the son, he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. We will be made sinless as he is sinless. Holy as he is holy. Righteous as he is righteous. So just like we have siblings here in our church. That nobody has to tell you that person is related to that other person. You can just tell. They they bear the family resemblance. There's going to be a day in glory, if you can believe it or not. Where people are going to look upon you, as it were, and say, you look like Jesus. I can tell you're related. We don't feel that so much here today in this life. Maybe some days. Perhaps most days not. There's a day coming. This is your destination, Christian. This is where you're headed. When you will look like the sun. And be like the Son. That's why God chooses you. In love, he wants you to look like his Son. And the other week, we were having some uh, friends over from Philadelphia. Uh, they came to our house for dinner. And uh, we were ha- having a dinner around the table. And our daughter made some uh, precocious comment. And, you know, kind of a, a mom-like comment. And the... Um, the the guests laughed and said, oh, maybe she's the firstborn after all. And Jacob's head snapped up right away. He said, I'm the firstborn in this family. <laughs> he wanted people to know he's the big brother. He's the big brother for his two siblings. He also wants us to know that he'd like six more. Good luck. But there's something special, right? Some There's something special about saying, I'm the oldest, and... And there's this sort of ownership over younger siblings. I don't know this. I'm the youngest, right? And yet, Paul is saying, Jesus has that for us. He, he has this ownership, this, this pride in us. Jesus wants a lot of siblings. And to be able to say, they're like me. And, and they're under my wing. And I've got them. That's what we're predestined for. Our election is all about Jesus. Why are we predestined? It's so that we would bear the divine family resemblance for the sake of the Son, for his sake. God, in election, fixes our future to be with and to look like Christ. I hope that's helpful for you. I know election is kind of one of those, it can become a very heady theological topic. It doesn't need to be. Predestination, it's it's as simple as this. It's God saying, one day you will perfectly resemble your elder brother. That's what it's about. And that's what's going to lift your drooping head, dear sinner, to know that God has fixed your future and it's a sinless future. That means no more addictions, no more crude speech, uh, no more anger and impatience, no more pride. God chooses us to be made like his son, the one who makes our salvation possible. And so he is the whole point. John Calvin in his Institute's says that if you want anything uh, more than Jesus out of your election, then you don't get what election is all about. He says if we desire anything more than to be reckoned among God's sons and heirs, we have to rise above Christ. What he means is we have to want something more than Christ. But if this Christ is our ultimate goal, how insane are we to seek outside him what we already have obtained in him and can find in him alone? That's what Calvin says. So, election draws us back. Understanding election and predestination draws us back to to the whole point of salvation, which is Jesus. There's then the third link in our chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called. What does calling mean? Uh, Calling is an affirmation that God never forgets to tell people where they're going. So he predestines us, and then he lets us know that he's predestined us. Calling is where God communicates his saving intentions to his people. Through our election, we are already saved. But again, to quote Calvin, he says, Although in choosing his own, the Lord has already adopted them as his children, we see that they do not come into possession of so great a good, except when they're called. So calling is when it becomes ours. It's when God leads us by an invitation of the gospel to receive in faith the truth that that Christ died for us that God has given him to us, that we're reconciled to God. The catechism's definition of of effectual calling is tough to beat. It's question 31. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery and enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He persuades and enables us to embrace Christ as he's offered freely in the gospel. He persuades us. Calling is when what God has done in the gospel becomes real to us. We, we're persuaded by it. We're convinced that it's for us. It's when what God has determined in eternity clicks for us right here, right now. So we've been talking about things that happen in eternity past. Calling happens in this life. And God will always give that conviction. He'll always give that persuasion to those whom he has loved and to those whom he has chosen. In other words, God never forgets to tell his own where they're going. He never forgets to send the invitation. Uh, or or, or the, the call never gets lost in the mail. There is no return to sender with God's call. It always, it always gets to its recipient. And when God calls you, the very moment when the gospel becomes real, you're justified. The fourth link. There are two key components in justification. First, we're pardoned. Second, we're declared righteous. You need both. Uh, Justification first tells us that we're pardoned on account of the sacrifice of Christ. That we're not accountable for our sins any longer. We don't have to pay for our our sins. The, The hymn tells us, bearing shame and scoffing rude... In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon. My pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. We would be buried to the pits of hell from the weight of our guilt and sin. Except that God intervenes and casts that guilt off. And takes our sin and throws them as far as the east is from the west. But you see, pardon isn't enough. We need righteousness to get into glory. Um, There is some good news in being pardoned, but that's not all the good news. Because if you're pardoned, that just kind of puts you in neutral. Now you still need to earn your salvation. It gets you out of hell, but it doesn't get you into heaven. But justification gets us both. We're receiving the righteousness that is necessary for the gates of glory to swing open on the last day and that we would be received in. That's why we see how justification connects to glorification, the final link in the chain, those whom are justified will be glorified. The, the, this, these verses that we're looking at, twenty-nine and thirty, encapsulate what Derek Thomas uh, has has uh, titled entitled his book on Romans eight. He has a little book on Romans eight it's down in the library, and the title of the book is "How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home." And that's what this is teaching us: those whom he has foreknown, he'll glorify; will get to glory. God's purpose in salvation does not and cannot and will not leave us halfway. In fact, so certain, look at the text in verse 30, so certain is Paul that we will be one day glorified. Do you notice how he puts it? He puts it in the past tense. Those whom he's justified, he glorified. As though it's already happened. That's how sure God's purpose in salvation is. It's as good as done. It's as good as done. Well, in verse 28, Paul said that all things work out for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. And this is God's purpose. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And so why is it good? As I said at the beginning, this is not simply a chain of salvation. It's been called the golden chain of salvation. Why is it Golden, the, the goldenness of this chain, it signifies not only its strength and its durability, but its goodness and its glory as it's forged in, in the very counsel of our triune God in the heavenly places. And so I, I want to briefly here as we close, just try to draw together some of the things we've been touching on, some, some I hope, easy to remember takeaways for why this golden chain is so golden, why this good news is so good. First, three things for us. First, this plan of salvation is unilateral. Unilateral. It's one-sided. Unilateral. There's one hero in the story of salvation, and it's not you and it's not me. It's God. He's the hero, through and through. It all comes from him. you look at the language of verse 30, Paul repeatedly uses the active voice in the third person. He says, he predestined. He called, he justified, he glorified. He doesn't use the passive voice, so we don't read those who are called are justified and are glorified. Though That's absolutely true, and he could have said that. But the the point Paul wants to make is this. The reason that anybody is called is because God does the calling. The reason anyone is justified is because God does the justifying. And the reason anyone will be glorified is because God is the one who brings about glorification. It's all one-sided. It's God and no one else. And that means it's not up to you. This is why the Christian doctrine of salvation and only the Christian doctrine of salvation is actually good news. Because every other religion or philosophy of life out there that has to do with salvation and eternity, every other one will place the burden on you at some point or another. You'll have to do something, if not everything, to earn your salvation. And such is our weakness that if any part of salvation depends on us, then we have no hope. If we have to do anything, then we can do nothing. Back in 1966, there was a, uh, a Hindu holy man, a mystic named Rayo, um, and he announced uh, that he was going to walk on water, 1966. And over 600 people paid to see him do this in Bombay, India, including some of the most famous people in India at that time. And so this holy man, he prayerfully prepared himself, um, became quite a spectacle. News uh, outlets came to witness this, and they they had set up this large pool. And um, when the time came, he stepped out, and you, you know where this goes, right? He, he didn't walk on water. You knew that already. He plunged to the bottom of the pool. But here's the interesting part. We all knew that was going to happen. Maybe we didn't see this. When he comes out of the water, he's sputtering, he's got, you know, water in his eyes. He points at the crowd. The 600 people who are surrounding the pool and he says, "One of you lacks faith. One of you is an unbeliever." He blamed his inability to do this this divine feat of strength on the participants, the people who were watching. The divine miracle was dependent on the onlooking lay people. And so it's not that Rayo failed them. They failed him. They hadn't done their part. But I want you to know this, friends. God's work is not dependent on any contribution from you or me. Not a single one. It's unilateral. And that's closely related to the second um, golden and glorious truth, that God's purpose in salvation is unconditional. It's unilateral and it's unconditional. Unilateral means that he does it all. Unconditional means that we receive all that he does apart from having to meet any sort of qualification. Uh, this is not Romans 8, 29, 30. It's not what God does for some believers. You know, have kind of uh, been promoted to a certain echelon of holiness, really good Christians. This is what he does for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of Christ. Our election is not grounded in ourselves, but in God's mercy. Not in what we are, but in what God makes us. And that's a great comfort when we are confronted with our unworthiness and with our weakness and with our sin. And that leads to the last point. Since this chain describes a salvation that is unilateral and unconditional, it means God's purpose is also unbreakable. It's unbreakable. And by this, I mean that each link of the chain is so bound up with the others that you can never sever the chain. If someone is for love, they will be called. If somebody is justified, they will be glorified. Um, nobody goes halfway. Octavius Winslow explains the nature of God demands this sort of deduction. It would be absurd for God uh, not to have ever, for God's plan not to all be bound up. He says, the truth of God must necessarily be a perfect whole, a chain of doctrines in which not a single link is lacking to connect together the different parts binding and weaving them into a beautiful and harmonious system. There is no monkey wrench that can throw off God's purpose and salvation. Even you and me. We're, we, we can't be a monkey wrench in God's plan. Uh, even our sin. I think about it. I mean, he divine, He designed salvation for sinners. Why should we think that that our sin is going to, to throw things off or catch him off guard? He designed salvation for sinners. Why should we think our sin can mess it up? But we do think that, don't we? We do think that. We we need to remind ourselves of, of these Especially these two last links in the chain. We need to to preach to ourselves. I am justified because I believe. Right? Because I have faith. I am justified. I will be glorified and nothing can stop it. Not even my sin. As bad as it is. As stubborn as it is. Because this chain is unbreakable. It's a golden chain unlike... Well, if I'm honest, unlike the... One I bought my wife on Etsy. When Jacob was born, I got Carrie Ann a gold necklace with a little charm on it with a J. And um, so with each subsequent child, got another charm, E, C. Um, Just a couple days ago, a couple nights ago, when we were in Maine, uh, she was rocking Caleb to sleep and he was being fussy. So fussy, in fact, that he got his little arm inside that necklace and he yanked it off her neck. And the charms went flying all over the hotel room, and we're, you know, on all fours with our flashlights on our phone trying to find the charms. So here we have the symbol of Kyrian's love for her children, the symbol of her love for the children, destroyed by one of the children. Here we're given, in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, God's love for his children. His love is such... That he predestines us and he calls us and he justifies us and he glorifies us. And his love for us can never be destroyed by us. Because the golden chain of salvation is stronger than anyone you'll ever find on Etsy. It cannot be destroyed by you or me, by our sin, even by our greatest of enemies. So, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we come to you with humble thanksgiving for your purposes of salvation, which are so good. We thank you for these verses, which show us a little more clearly how it is that you work all things together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And your purpose is beyond us. It. it it begins in eternity it will never end it is undeserved by us and so we can only thank you and we can only give ourselves to you in with all our heart mind soul and strength and say lord we're yours you've called us to be yours we want to live as yours so knowing that that you have set this undestructible love upon us, this unbreakable love upon our hearts, would we respond by being faithful to you and living as those who have been loved with an everlasting love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.